Uh, one of the things I think I like most about Christmas is that for better or worse, we all have to go through it together. I mean, all of us, uh, even outside of the church. It's, it's compulsory. I've had some really great Christmas seasons. I've had some really disappointing Christmas seasons. I'm sure you have as well. I've had Christmas times where I've been at home, wherever my home was, and I've had Christmas times where I've been away, away from people that I love. I've had Christmases where I have received presents, many presents, and I've had some Christmas mornings where I've had no presents to open at all. And by the way, some of those were my, some of my best memories of Christmas. I've been snowed in at Christmas, and I've been in 80 degrees weather with flowers growing outside my window at Christmas. Sadly, though, I've had some Christmas times where Christ has seemed to be more present with me than at other Christmas times. And I think sometimes, we all experience this, I think, sometimes we feel like there are Christmas times where Christ is real and present to us, and some Christmas seasons where it almost feels silly to try to pretend as if he has anything to do with the holiday that we're experiencing. It reminds me of the great theologian Homer Simpson, who said in a 2003 Christmas episode, he said, let's just say that on this day a million years ago, a dude was born who most of us think was magic. But others don't, and that's cool, but we're probably right. Amen. And I, Terrible, isn't it, to say that? But I at least understand how some of us can descend into that kind of cynicism and despondency. Because in many ways, how we treat this holiday, even as people in the church, have, has little to do with the reason for it. Even when we're careful, it's easy for Christians to lose their way during the Christmas season because we're just involved in this together. We're like cows. We're being herded certain places in the mall or on Christmas Eve or Walmart. For goodness sake, I had to go grocery shopping. and I, I would not go to Walmart to go grocery shopping right now because it's crazy. The author of this hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, the reason I'm bringing this up is because he lost his way as well at a time in his life. So as we continue our series, The Songs of Christmas, what we're doing, for those of you who haven't been here, is we're using Christmas songs as jumping points or windows into the Word of God where we find scriptural truths that are well known to us, if not forgotten. But when we look at the history of this song, it's interesting because I think more so than maybe any other song, it's important what the story of the author is when I tell it. Uh, So let's talk about the story of the author as we talk about the story of the song. Phillips Brooks was an inspirational preacher in his day. Six foot, six inches, over 300 pounds. It was said, and that's huge for his day, when most men were 5'9". It was said that he sang over 200 hymns from memory and blasted out sermons at a rate of 250 words per minute. He was born in 1835. He died in 1893. He's probably best known today for this song. And maybe a book, maybe not for you, but there's a book called The Joy of Preaching, which is still required reading for most preaching students today. I had to go through that book, The Joy of Preaching. He has a building named for him at Harvard. He was knighted by Queen Victoria. He was asked to preach the funeral sermon and did so of Abraham Lincoln, even though he wasn't the president's pastor. That's how well known he was. But Phillips Brooks burned out. 
He had become the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia, and he teamed up with a wonderful musician and an uber salesman named Louis Redner. And the church quickly took off. They began with 30 children in Sunday school. And a side note, most churches were built through their Sunday school programming. In fact, that happened all the way up through about 1960. This church's history was built through a Sunday school program. Within a year, that 30 children had swelled to over 1,000 children in Philadelphia. It continued to simply increase from there. But then the Civil War hit, and a darkness fell over the land, and that darkness obviously came inside the church slowly, but little by little. Most of the women began to wear black because of all of the husbands and the sons who were never coming back from the war. Phillips Brooks became drained trying to be inspirational to people during this time. It seemed like he couldn't be inspirational enough to pick up the mood of his congregation. And even after the Civil War ended, he felt like he had lost his vitality and his passion as a preacher. So, as was common in the day, he went to his church and he asked for a sabbatical for a year to spend his time touring the Middle East. They agreed, and then he found himself in Jerusalem on Christmas Eve and went for a horse ride with a few of his friends. At dusk, when the first stars were out, he rode into the tiny village of Bethlehem. The town had changed little since the birth of Christ, and it lifted Brooks' spirit to be within a few feet of the possible spot where Jesus the Savior was born. There was singing in the church of that time, called the Church of the Nativity, echoing through the town, and Brooks felt surrounded by the Spirit of God, and his spirit was revived. Brooks later wrote about this experience and said, I remember standing in the old church in Bethlehem, close to the spot where Jesus was born, when the whole church was ringing hour after hour with the splendid hymns of praises to God, How again and again it seemed as if I could hear voices I knew well telling each other of the wonderful night of the Savior's birth. Phillips Brook revived his soul because of this visit to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. He returned to the States revived, but he struggled to share and recreate this experience with his brothers and sisters in Christ. Words didn't seem to convey just quite correctly how important this experience was to him, the meaning of it. So it was in 1868, just a couple of years later, but just a few days before his Christmas sermon was needed to be delivered, that this big preacher found himself pacing the hallways of his church, and his thoughts took him back three years to his experience in Jerusalem on Christmas Eve. And so he went back to his office, he pushed his sermon aside, and he penned the words quickly to a poem that he titled, O little town of Bethlehem. He then gave the words to this poem to his right-hand man, Louis Redner, and asked him to write a tune so that the children's choir could sing it on the Christmas morning service. Now, the organist was not really a composer, but he agreed to have a go at it. But nothing happened, and he couldn't figure out a way through it. So in frustration, because Redner wanted to get it right, He simply went to bed on Christmas Eve feeling like a failure. He was not going to come through for his preacher friend for Christmas morning. But something amazing happened. At about midnight, Redner wrote later, he was awakened with what he called, and I quote, an angel strain from heaven, music coming down from the Lord. So he woke up at midnight. He jotted down the tune quickly. By the way, uh, by the way, another side note, most of the hymns that we sing, even most of the Christmas hymns we sing, 
were simply put to music that was previously comp composed by somebody else. But this was entirely something new he was composing. And he woke up and he wrote down the notes to that tune, and then he quickly went back to bed and fell asleep like a baby. The next morning he was awakened early and he took the words that he'd written down and he went to the piano and, and, and he looked at the words that his pastor friend had written and he was amazed at how perfectly the tune fit the words. And that same day he taught this new carol to the children of the Philadelphia Sunday School and they sang it in 1868. It's been a favorite of many since then in and outside of the church up to this very day. And even though Phillips Brooks was the most recognized and accomplished preacher in his day, he's still probably best known for this little song that we sing at Christmas, a poem written by his pen in just a few minutes, and a tune sent by God, but written with the help of Lewis Redner. That's the story of the song. But then the question that we always ask every Sunday morning is, so what does it mean, and what, does, what can it teach us? Well, we're going to do what we normally do. We're going to look at some of the stanzas of the song. We're going to talk about the words and what they teach us as we enter our Christmas season. What does this song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, teach us? Well, I think it teaches us, first of all, that the Savior came to a nowhere place. The Savior comes to nowhere places today. The words of the song say this, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears, I love that line, of all the years are met in thee tonight. Bethlehem was not an oppressive little town. It was a little suburb of Jerusalem with an estimated population of about 150 at the time. It would have made Newville seem like a metropolis. Bethlehem had no notable resources. It didn't have a crossroad in it going anywhere or coming from anywhere important. It was a quiet shepherding community in its day and still is mostly today. It was so small that in both Joshua 15 and Nehemiah 11, it is overlooked when listing the cities in Judah. Simply overlooked. But, as my dad used to say, big things come in small packages. Jacob's wife, Rachel, was buried in Bethlehem. She died, if you remember, giving birth to Benjamin. Israel's greatest king, David, guess where he was born? Bethlehem, a nobody kid who became somebody. Ruth was redeemed. Remember the story of Ruth? She was redeemed by Boaz in Bethlehem. But also, Bethlehem was the place prophesied about which the, the coming Messiah would come from there. 700 years Earlier, Micah wrote in Micah 5.2, But as for you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you see, God had to be really specific because there were two Bethlehems. Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. I like what God said there. He says, uh, a ruler is going to come from you, but really he's not from you. He's from ages past. This prophecy was so obscure, though, in their day that many simply overlooked it and never realized the importance of that prophecy. Now, we know, don't we, that Mary was the chosen delivery method for the Son of God. But what maybe you don't know is that she lived in Nazareth. I, I, I got a map for you. Nazareth was uh, 80 miles north of Bethlehem, 80 miles north of Jerusalem. See the difference? 80 miles north, and between them sat this huge expanse of Samaria. Samaria was all sin 
sin. Like that's, th- those were Gentiles they didn't speak to. There's the godly people in Jerusalem, godly people, quotation, and there's all of that sin in Samaria, and then way up there is Nazareth. Nazareth, a nowhere place. So Mary was with child, and, and can you imagine, like, the angels who knew, obviously, all of the prophecies of God, like, how, what, how, what's God going to do here? How's he going to get Mary? How's he going to get the son to Bethlehem? And sure enough, it looked pretty bleak that it would happen. She's pregnant, right? Angel comes, she gets pregnant. One month passes, three months passes, six months pass, eight months pass, eight months and two weeks. It's too late to travel now. How's God going to figure this out? But then Luke says in chapter 2, verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. Chapter 2, verse 3, all went to their own towns to be registered. Now, what's Emperor Augustus doing? Well, we know what he was doing. He was trying to get more tax money. You know, even today, censuses are political things. You have to know who you have so you can know how much you can get. So everyone had to go to their place of birth, their family's place of birth, to register. And guess who was from Bethlehem? Joseph, who was engaged to Mary. He was from the city of David, Bethlehem. So in the final month, gave the final couple of weeks of pregnancy, they had to travel 80 miles by horseback. In her condition, a week or two of travel at least through the dangerous Samaria or around it because of politics. Can you imagine? I mean, really, think about this if you're them. Put your own mindset in how we would think today. How unfair you would think this would be? How, how ill-treat, how, you know, what ill-treatment for you and your family? Maybe... What you would have said along this ride about this terrible ruler and his horrible edicts, what would you have said? What would have come out of your mouth if you had to do this if you were Joseph or Mary? In fact, maybe some of you have said some of the same things about our leader today. But the Bible says, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And the Bible there is not talking about a Christian king, any old king. In Daniel 5, it says God removes kings and establishes kings. And when we think that we can kick at and rebel against even unchristian authorities, we should remember the words of Paul in Romans 13 too. Therefore, whoever resists authority, not Christian authority, authority, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Obviously, we're not talking about authorities that tell you to do something against the word of God but just authorities that you have to obey. I'm sure that Joseph and Mary did not want to travel. They were poor already. This trip would consume what little resources they had left. But what did they do? They obeyed. And I've said time and time again, and we'll continue to say, that God doesn't need you to understand. He doesn't need me to understand. What does he need from us? That's right. Obedience, submission. Why? Well, think about this birth. Emperor Augustus simply thought that he was really smart. He was instituting an edict that would result in a windfall financially for him. Yes, he thought of this. For sure he did. Mary and Joseph were simply being put out. They couldn't see any way this could be good for them. But what was God doing? God was keeping his word, fulfilling his prophecy. And when God keeps his word, we all have hope. Just do what people tell you to do. So Joseph and Mary show up in Bethlehem, a nowhere place with no hotels, And in short time, we know that the baby comes forth, maybe even as soon as they begin to enter the town. Big things come in small packages. Probably the greatest battle fought on American soil is just in a little place just a few miles from here, Gettysburg. 
many of you know, have been to. It was a town of about 2,000 people in 1860, and yet the greatest battle known on American soil was fought right there. Abraham Lincoln was born at Sinking Springs Farm in Kentucky, a nowhere place. Martin Luther was born in a little mining town, Iobine, to a mining father in 1483. And that little town produced a miner's son who began the Protestant Reformation and brought the Catholicism to its knees. But the greatest surprise in all of mankind was God. Remember, think about this, God himself coming to earth in a little nowhere town of 150 people called Bethlehem. Bethlehem, a name that means house of bread, Bethlehem. Out of Bethlehem, the house of bread comes forth, the bread of life. The Savior comes still today to nowhere places. And then he also came to nobody people. Still today he comes to nobody people. In the second stanza, Phillips Brooks realized this, and he wrote these words, For Christ is born of Mary, and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wandering love. Jesus' parents were not impressive or successful in the eyes of the world. Mary was just a young teenager. Do you remember that? She was from Nazareth. They used to have a saying in that day, Nothing good comes from Nazareth. That was the phrase of the day. Why? Because that was the city on the north of Samaria, and Nazareth was actually known for its sin and depravity. They weren't like the people in Jerusalem. Yes, they were Jews, but they were different kinds of Jews. They were defiled by the evil people in Samaria. Mary's family came from Nazareth. Mary herself was very poor. Her family, very poor. Joseph, we know, was a carpenter. A carpenter may have been slightly respected, but still a blue-collar worker, hand-to-mouth existence. We know how poor they were because everybody in their day had to make sacrifices, whether they were going to dedicate a child or to to make sacrifices for their sin yearly, and they would all come to Jerusalem. And Leviticus tells us what was required. Do you know what was required? A female lamb or a goat. But Leviticus 5.7 says this, Anyone who cannot afford a sheep, you shall bring to the Lord as your penalty for sin that you have committed two turtle doves, Three French hens. No, I'm just kidding. Two pigeons. Two turtle doves or two pigeons. And Luke 2, that's for the poorest of poor. Luke 2 tells us what did Joseph and Mary bring to Jerusalem to dedicate their child. The offering was two birds, the Bible says. An offering that was there for the poorest among a poor, poor people. You know, when we lived in Guatemala, we were privileged, I believe, to be involved in mission organizations that ministered to pregnant Mayan women, young mothers. Almost always they were young, almost always ill-equipped with any knowledge about how to really raise a baby, except what they had seen, except what they had heard, except what had been passed down to them by their mothers, and a lot of that was just mystical stuff that wasn't true. They were always poor, and whenever you went to these places, you'd see 50, 60, 80 women with all of these little dirty poor babies, dirty clothes, little milk, little food, sickness. You see the babies with their eyes, with goop in their eyes, runny noses. Many times I would be affected by that, and I would cry simply by spending time with them or watching, more more likely, watching the other missionaries minister to them as I took care of the missionaries. Because why? Because those mothers would have looked a lot like Mary. You know, there's a picture of Mary that we think we know, right? This is the Mary that we like to see. This is the Mary, this is the American Mary or the European Mary with makeup, right? She's beautiful. 
But I guarantee that, that the Mary that was the Mary looked more like this woman right here. Just a young, poor girl, teenager, with clothes. And I can tell you, exa- <laughs> I can tell you exactly what they smell like. Earth, food, dirt, smoke. Those clothes don't get washed even monthly, yearly maybe. I mean, this is how they live. And Mary would have been just like that, just like that, that young lady there, poor, shunned by her community for getting pregnant out of wedlock, remember? So now she's also shunned. Unsanitary? Of course, we know she was unsanitary. Why? Because the Jesus baby was born in less than ideal conditions. She was traveling. How unwise was that? And then her baby's born, and where did they put the baby? Swaddled? And swaddled clothes, that means borrowed clothes, pieces, strips of linen that they got from places they could find, and then laid in a feeding trough. This is not a family. This is not a woman that you or I, I think, would even want to babysit our children, let alone raise it. You know, Heather and I, and maybe this sounds, I'll go ahead at the, you know, maybe this sounds a little uppity, but Heather and I are careful about our babysitters. We always ask questions. Are they responsible? Are they old enough? Are they maternal enough? Do they know how to respond in an emergency, right? I mean, these are questions you have to ask. Can they do a bedtime routine? Can they make sure the kids brush their teeth? Can they bow next to a child and say prayers at nighttime? Can they, you know, this is a little picky on our part, but do they wash the pots and pans and put the things back in the dishwasher, right? Do we come home to a house that's put back together? Are they well-spoken? Are the babysitters themselves clean? Do they come from good families? Don't you think we have our own internal list before we choose somebody to come and, and, and be with our most valuable uh, commodities in our life? I don't think that Mary would have made my list as a babysitter. And I know that because when we lived in Guatemala, do you think when we had the needed babysitter, we would ask a Mayan girl to come over and take care of our babies? And yet God chose Mary as not just a babysitter, but as the human mother for his son. God wants us to always know that it's about him, doesn't he? It's not about you, and it's not about I. It's his greatness that matters, not our own. Look what the Bible says. Jacob was the lesser of the two boys. Esau was much more impressive. David was the least of all of his brothers, the only one who couldn't grow facial hair. Gideon was a wheat farmer. Rahab was a prostitute. Esther was an orphan. Amos was a shepherd and a fruit tree picker. And all of these people became fearless warriors, kings, leaders, people in the lineage of Jesus Christ, and prophets. This is how God works. Look at the disciples that Jesus chose to change the world. God overlooked what? The lawyers with degrees, the highest powers, and the most celebrated thinkers in their day. And he chose tax collectors, zealots, fishermen, prostitutes, castoffs. Of course, now, God uses brilliant people as well. He used the Apostle Paul, was a brilliant thinker in his day. He used Augustine, uh, Luther, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis. These are great men. But God often and most often uses simple people. Why does God do that? Because God likes to get the credit. Yeah, because the hope of the world is not in people. The hope of the world is in him, not in humans who are specially gifted. God could have used Moses, couldn't he have, when he, was in, when he was Pharaoh's son in the palace? But God had a much more fruitful time using Moses as a failure, when he was an old shepherd with a stuttering problem. That's when God came. 
So much so did God build his church through the below average group, and you can count yourself in that group with me if you want, that Paul could write this to the church in Corinth. This is what he said to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not. Isn't that amazing? Things that are not. Nobody people. To reduce to nothing things that are. Somebody people. Why? Why does God do this? And he gives the answer. So that no one might boast in the presence of God. When I was a child, we used to have a few sayings. I don't know where they came from. I don't know if it was a preacher or it was my dad. But if somebody was, you know, like a preacher was a little bit, you know, not trustworthy, we would say something like, you know, God can hit good licks with crooked sticks. If somebody had a bad background or maybe they had failed in some way, we'd say, God can hit good licks with broken sticks. God can hit good licks with any old stick. Psalm 75, 7 says, God brings one down and he exalts another. What makes a person great has nothing to do with what we think it does. It has nothing to do with finances. It has nothing to do with education. It has nothing to do with birth order or gender. It has nothing to do with skin color or age or even experience. What makes a person great is the great God that lives and dwells in us. Mary was great. Why? Because God chose her. But God did not choose Mary because she was great. But God chose her, and therefore Mary is great because of God. This Christmas, remember that God comes to nowhere places, and God comes into nobody people. And finally, I want you to realize that the Savior also comes as a nobody person himself, as an unnoticed treasure. Phillips Brooks said this finally in his third stanza. He says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. How silently, how silently this wondrous gift is given. What is he talking about there? You know, my wife and I do not get Christmas gifts for one another. Uh, there's some reasons we didn't do that. First of all, because her birthday is December 23rd, and it's, it's, just difficult to do birthday for her and Christmas for her. So I say, you know what? Let's do birthday for you and not Christmas for you and not Christmas for me. And, and plus, but here's the bigger reason we do it. We, because we like to spend money on sometimes other occasions. For instance, we don't do anything special on holidays. We don't do anything special on Valentine's Day. We don't do anything special on anniversary. There's sometimes our anniversary goes by. We say, oh, it was our anniversary, right? And maybe you think that's terrible of me, but we both do that. Why do we do that? Because we like to have resources for things at times when we want to do them. Like, take a mission trip. I was able to send them to go back to Guatemala a couple of years ago for a week or two. Or or I was able to send her to Indiana to visit a friend who's going through a difficult time and to stay and spend money with her. And you can't do that and do all of the other things that the world wants you to do when they want you to do it. But I will say this, even though that's the way we do our life and you don't have to do it that way, I will say this. If I ever was one of those guys who thought it was really important to purchase my wife a $5,000 piece of jewelry or a $10,000 piece of jewelry on Christmas morning so she could open it up and just cry over something that's shiny. But if I was, those ty- if I was that kind of guy and I ever did that, let me tell you, I'm going to tell you something about myself. I would be sure that she knew how much it cost. I would. Now, I would, I'm 
I wouldn't come right out and say it, but I'd find a way for the price tag to be accidentally stuck on the bottom of the box. Right? Have you ever done that? Like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Give me, I didn't get that one. I had the other one off, but I didn't get that price tag off. Right? No, no, no. Richard, it's not because, in case she doesn't like it. It's because I want her to know how much it costs. Why do I want her to know how much it costs? Because I want her to know how much I love her. Because I want her to know it was a sacrifice. Look how much money I spent on you. I'm one of those guys. Sometimes, sometimes I'll do that just by washing the dishes and cleaning the house, you know? Like, it's, she doesn't say anything. I'm like, well, did you notice? <laughs> Look at it. She said, yeah, you did your job. Way to go. Right? She's a tough, tough woman. I love her. Why do I do that? Because, listen... Here's what I think about God's greatest, think about this, God's greatest gift that was ever given, the only God, and the greatest gift that he could ever give came without a price tag. Hidden value. I can't believe, silently comes as a helpless baby to poor parents in a nowhere town, almost as if God was purposefully hiding the value of his gift. What incredible restraint by God. When I was a young man, I used to think, someday I'm going to be married, and I bet you I'm going to give birth to a boy who's going to be a starting linebacker for the Ohio State Buckeyes. And I'm going to sit there at the 50-yard line, and he's going to have one of his 18 tackle performances, and I'm just going to say, yeah, that's my boy. That's my boy. And everyone will love him. And I'll look around and say, yeah, I'm pretty special. My genes did that, right? Everyone will love him. That's what I want. Because if they love him, they love me. But God is nothing like me. You know what Isaiah 53 says? You know what, you know, you know what he says about his son that's going to come? He says, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Acquainted with infirmity, the Bible says, and as one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him of no account. The most precious, the most valuable gift that mankind could ever receive from the most valuable and precious God that's ever lived came as a nobody in a nowhere place and in a form of humility. And when I say form of humility, not just being in the form of a human, which is low enough, but lowly even for those around him, lowly in comparison to everybody else on earth, the light of the world, squinting to bring light into his infant eyes, the creator of the world, who casts stars in sculpted mountains, clinging to Joseph's pinky, the bread of all humanity swaddled in a feeding trough that could only sustain a few animals. You know the song, Mary, Did You Know? And sometimes at Christmas I want to say, do we know? Do I know? Do you really know? The way that Jesus came, no price tag. Because I think the price was too high to put on a sticker. The king of all humanity, born among animals and flies, with the smell of a working farm around him to parents who could not love him equivalent to his value. Nor would they, nor can we, nor do we today. You know, I was thinking this week as I was you know, closing my sermon, I thought about the hundreds of thousands of people who gather all of the time to hear a special musician or a special, you know, artist. I mean, it's crazy. To get an autograph from a famous athlete or from a famous actor. Prince Williams, I know just last week, Prince Williams and Princess Kate, famous in their own right, traveled to America to meet LeBron James. 
Someday, the Bible says, every knee will bow, every tongue confess to this infant king who came poor and yes, ugly and yes, despised, and this king who saved the chosen world. Now, let me ask you, what will make Christmas meaningful to you this season? Will it be the right gift? Will it be the best gift that you've ever gotten? And as some of you are kind of saying, no, I know where you're going with this. No, 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 that's not true. Well, let me tell you that it is true. What will make Christmas meaningful is the right gift and the best gift. But I will tell you that that gift will come silently, almost unnoticed, if it comes to you at all. I began with the great theologian Homer Simpson. I'm going to end today with the great theologian Theodore Geisel. And he wrote, Every who, down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming at all. It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. If you want to know God, and I know you do, if you want to remember what he is and and have that consume you, remember the way that he came to nowhere place, to nobody people, as an unnoticed gift. You know, the last stanza, I'm not going to preach to you because it's a prayer that Phillips Brooks sends up to God. And as we try to get our hearts in the right place with Christmas, this Christmas, I'm going to ask you for you to close your eyes as well. And I'm going to read this last stanza as a prayer for all of us. And then I'll ask for Gary to come up and close our last song as we sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Let's pray. O Holy Child of Bethlehem, Descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sins and enter in. Be born to us today. We hear the Christmas angels. The great glad tidings tell, Oh, come to us. Abide with us. Our Lord, Emmanuel. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.